Thank you for setting your podcast out of 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson. As we prepare to enjoy our Thanksgiving meals, though our tables may be a little less crowded this year, there is much for which to give thanks. After three weeks of stalemate between the Trump administration and President-elect Biden, the transition to a new administration appears to be getting up to running speed. President Trump has maintained his vow to never concede, but a series of signal events seem to be bringing the handwriting on the wall into sharper focus. Uh, Three of the states contested by the Trump campaign, Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Michigan, have now certified their results in Biden's favor. Uh, The president's legal team has been on the losing end of nearly all of their lawsuits and suffered a particularly adverse ruling by a federal judge in Pennsylvania over the past weekend. But most consequential this week, the General Services Administration has ascertained Biden as the apparent winner of the election and will now start providing federal resources to begin the transfer of power, with the president-elect now receiving the presidential daily brief on intelligence matters and the pandemic response. The Electoral College will meet December 14th to formally elect the president and vice president ahead of the January 20th inauguration. Gathering no moss, President-elect Biden rolled out his first slate of cabinet nominees this week as well, but still remaining a lame duck session of the Congress, the full transition Senate runoff elections in Georgia, and all of our hopes now turning to the manufacture and distribution of a COVID vaccine in the new year. Stick it in my veins. 2020's not done with us yet. I'm so pleased to be joined today again by two of my colleagues here at the firm, Republican Bruce Melman and Democrat David Thomas, to break it all down as we cover 2020 in 20 minutes. Bruce, David, welcome to 14th and G. Good morning, Dean. Another fantastic overview, Dean. I feel like I don't need to read the New York Times. I'm just listening to you. (laughs) Well, the Daily can eat their hearts out. Dean, I was just pleased to hear you use the word president-elect Biden. Now, that wasn't so hard, was it? You know, you know, DT, it wasn't. You know, the process uh, has run its course. And with ascertainment by the GSA, what, what else can we say? David, uh, Biden has continued his comparatively low-key approach to the transition, despite the stalemate. He's really just moved forward and I think trusted the process to sort out the formalities. Uh, The most prominent marker of that is his beginning to name his cabinet. These folks still have to get through Senate confirmation in the next Congress. But some familiar names here for secretaries of state and treasury, among others, some grumbling from progressives in your party. What does this first slate of nominees tell you about what a Biden administration is going to look like? You know, I think as we uh, roll into Thanksgiving here, the, the best comments I've seen on this uh, transition and the announcements is that it is delightfully boring and that uh, sort of a return to a more normal sense of being in the United States here. Uh, but don't confuse boring with being competent, with being experienced. I think what the president-elect has done with this first round of nominations is he's gone to people who do have that core experience. There's a lot of work to be done. The ones he rolled out this week in the national security foreign policy space are all very well-known entities, people who have been confirmed by the Senate before and who have, uh, you know, many of whom have served as deputy at the agencies that they will now run. Blinken at State, uh, Mayorkas at DHS, Avril Haines as a DNI, and of course, Janet Yellen at Treasury, um, 
who spent uh, time at the Fed as well. These people should be able to hit the ground running. These are not, uh, you know, as I look at them, not controversial uh, nominees, people that the Senate should be able to consider. And I think we'll soon see that shift. And, and we'll, uh, you know, hopefully hear from Senator McConnell soon on how this early confirmation process will go. Past transitions, President Obama had six confirmations done by Inauguration Day. So that's the Senate actually started meeting in early January to do the confirmations. So they were approved by January 20th when the president was sworn in. Uh, president Bush had seven confirmed by uh, his Inauguration Day. We're, hopefully, Biden will get that same courtesy. Will He will have at least a few members of his teams up and ready on the 20th. That's going to be a little complicated with the two Georgia runoffs remaining on January 5th. The new Congress does get sworn in on January 3rd ahead of the presidential inauguration, but we're not going to know for certain what Senate control looks like perhaps many days after the 5th. Uh, yeah, that's true. And, uh, you know, unclear sort of how things go in Georgia here, but I think the current majority leader. I uh, could send a, a signal to at least start the uh, staff work and the meetings and those kind of uh, things that take place to get ready for the Senate to con- uh, do a formal floor consideration of, of nominees who have a wealth of experience. So that's where I'm hoping we'll be in, in early January, ready to dive in. Bruce, I think the overarching question for many when it comes to President Trump is is what actions he might take in his remaining two months in office both to cement his legacy and tie the hands of the incoming administration. This is common practice for any outgoing administration through agency rulemaking, confirmation of remaining nominees, the presidential pardons. What are you keeping an eye out for as as President Trump winds up his time in office? Yeah, with about 60 days remaining, it's the four P's, Dean. It's purges, pardons, policies, and people embedding. And so purges, of course, we saw several. The defense secretary got fired. The uh, head of cybersecurity uh, for elections got fired, which is a little bit ironic because the guy did an unbelievably successful job. In a different universe, the president might have been taking credit, as he deserves, for putting people in place to to run such successfully free, fair, unimpacted by foreign uh, entities or others' elections. I mean, it was a grand slam home run. The problem is once he lost, he didn't want it to be a grand slam home run. So we'll see if more folks get fired. feels like a lot of the shoes that we expected have already dropped. Uh, Then there are pardons. The rumor mill, uh, once again, Jonathan Swan of Axios breaks news, and he's going to continue doing it, I bet, that Mike Flynn, the first uh, national security advisor, uh, may get pardoned. I think we could see a whole lot more folks who are either uh, in limbo, in jail, or uh, or otherwise amidst legal process get pardoned. And again, like you point out, most of these things, whether it's pardons or, or getting rid of folks or, or fi- finalizing policies, happen in all administrations. But as with everything else in Trump era, it's like dog years. It's just so much more and so much more intense. Uh, a lot of regulations that agencies have been working on for some amount of time are getting finalized. But then you get the sense that some things are being rushed that maybe wouldn't have happened. Like, you know, how do we get leases so that people start drilling as soon as possible in Alaska to make it hard to undo? And finally, people embedding some number of folks looking to shift from political appointee to career roles. Uh, Ironically, the president had signaled an intention to make it easier to fire career folks. Now, he won't be able to finish and finalize that rule. Uh, but he'll probably leverage the protections uh, that are in the system for some of his folks who don't want to leave government service. 
Well, the 116th Congress on the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue uh, will come back for one last gasp next week after Thanksgiving. Uh, government funding expires December 11th. Uh, defense authorization bill remains unfinished. Another COVID relief bill still seems elusive. Uh, as folks get back into the swing of things following Thanksgiving, is this lame duck session of Congress going to prove eventful or is it going to be one big punt into 2021? What do you guys think? Boy, you know, I'm uh, leaning more towards that punt here. It feels a little bit uh, like the Hill is going to uh, end up sort of like the Redskins, or I should say the Washington football team's uh, season here. So careful, DT, careful. Whole lot of nothing. Um, I think what we're going to have here, Dean, is is they're going to come back on the, uh, you know, the goal to get an appropriations bill done on the 11th and also the NDAA. Uh, those are sort of the two big ticket items out there that, that most parties would like to get done. They made progress on appropriations this week. The top line numbers are set. I think if the appropriators uh, could uh, just work amongst themselves, they could easily have this done by the 11th. But uh, it's not just them. Obviously, it's something that the White House just to agree and sign. So I suspect we're going to have at least a punt to the 18th and then move on after uh, I think it's likely to get kicked into next year. NDAA, we still have a controversy over the naming of Confederate uh, bases uh, that the president does not want to see in there. And there hasn't been an agreement how to work that deal out. And then, of course, the third bucket is, is a COVID bill. There were rumors about negotiations maybe starting back up, but I think those uh, rumors were a bit premature and a little bit of misunderstanding between the parties. So I think at this point, you know, we hopefully we keep the government funded and we don't have a shutdown right before the holidays. But I don't see too much more uh, after that. I tend to agree with DT, although if we're going to go into football analogies, I think avoiding a safety, I'm happy. If we can just punt it and not get uh, not get brought down in the end zone. It feels more like European football. It's no own goals here. And, uh, and life is good. It, you know, any, a fascinating thing we're watching really close, Dean, is, you know, I agree with DT. They're going to they're not going to shut government down. I just don't see how that happens. I think they're going to find a way, even if it's some kind of study or punt or let's revisit it in six months on the on the base naming to get NDAA done. But the covid bills, what's so interesting, because you're really looking in the news now and seeing the duality that is covid in America's economy. Uh, on the one hand, the stock market just crested over 30,000 for the first time ever. You know, so the the part of the economy that's doing OK, it's working from home uh, is killing it. And by contrast, we know that there are uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Americans who might be evicted January 1st. Uh, we know that, you know, we're hitting uh, we're back up north of 2000 deaths of, of covid and, and, and uh, it's spreading uncontrolled across the country. I, what what I wonder is, will folks be thinking, well, their vaccine's coming and the markets are hot, so let's not keep adding to the debt. Uh, let's start dialing back government's engagement. Or will folks conclude, wow, we need to triple down. So many people are dying. And a lot of the things that we've avoided uh, in terms of second order economic consequence um, now that the stimulus, uh, original stimulus is all is going to be done, creating real need for another bill. And that's, I fear Congress just wants to get out of Dodge. But I also worry that the longer they wait, the more long-term economic damage we risk. So much of this, Bruce, you're right, depends on the dynamics in Congress. And the, the dynamics for the next Congress are already impacting 
I think, particularly Speaker Pelosi's leverage in these negotiations. David, I continue to marvel at the results from the House elections, I, not to bring up a painful topic for you, but just to recap, many prominent pollsters were forecasting Democrats to expand their majority by as many as 12 to 15 seats. We've got eight very close House races still undecided, several in recounts. Uh, it's the Republicans who may end up flipping as many as 15 seats. That gives Speaker Pelosi the barest of margins. She could only lose five members on any single vote in a House of 435. It's going to be the slimmest House majority in over 100 years. Is the House ungovernable for her? And, and what does it mean for the Biden agenda next year? Uh, yeah, a five-seat majority is about as small as you can have in the House. And I think Bruce will uh, point out to me what the historical uh, uh, comparison there is, how long it's been since it's been that small a majority. But but what I'll say is, you know, I, I don't believe anybody is, is indispensable, but Pelosi may be the indispensable person, the only person amongst the, the Democrats who can actually still forge a way through with these, these tight majorities here. You're right. It could be uh, as, as few as 222 Democrats starting next year. It is a, it's going to be a more progressive caucus, but a more vocal moderate base because of those losses here. So you really do have these competing sides uh, uh, pulling at each other. What I think they're looking at right now is, is really the, the nuts and bolts of governing the House floor. How do they keep control? What are they going to do about discharge petitions, which I know is a concern? Uh, motions to recommit. Do they? Uh, are there some changes in the rules package that they'll do on the first day to avoid that procedural hurdle that the minority can use in the House to to sort of trip up legislation right uh, before it gets passed by the House? I'm looking at a lot of different things here in that respect, but really, I think you know the the larger thing that they are looking at now is 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 how do you you know find that middle ground between the progressives and the moderates you saw majority leader uh, Hoyer speak out a lot this week on the importance of of compromise within the caucus this is not compromising with republicans to get something done but right. realizing that they can't you know no no one faction of the democratic caucus is going to get everything they want so how are they going to communicate work together to to find that sweet spot to get the biden agenda moving. And I think I, I think that President-elect will play an important role here too, working hand in hand with Pelosi to sort of get the, the, the people on the edges back to the middle to try to pass some of these bills. And Dean, uh, it sounds like DT paged history nerd Melman. So uh, in response, DT, obviously we'll have to see the ultimate margin, but assuming it's an 11 point margin, you know, 11 seat margin, which means you lose six votes and you lose the floor. Uh, an 11 seat margin would be the smallest for the Democrats since 1875 to 1877. Wow. The Democrats had a 13 seat margin in 1943. Now, the Republicans in 01 to 2003 only had a seven seat majority, and they only had a two seat majority in 1931 to 33, which talk about a swing. Here you go. Before the Depression started hitting, so the Congress that began in 1929. Uh, was the, the Democrats had a 106-seat deficit. You go through that Congress, the Great Depression hits, they gain 104 seats. They're at a two-seat deficit in 31 to 33. And in the next Congress, they have a majority of 196 seats. That is change. The 20s, they were great in the last century. Maybe they'll be great in the next century. Bruce, how about 2021? Uh, Republicans are going to be overwhelming favorites to take back the House. Incumbent president's party typically loses anywhere from 40 to 60 seats. 
uh, presuming the Senate stays under Republican control, and I do so presume, where do the deals get cut uh, on the big issues, pandemic response we've talked about, but China and trade, tech regulation, immigration, and how do they cut these deals while each side wages civil war within their own ranks? So uh, you're right. This is going to be an interesting and challenging Congress. Uh, I am I am more hopeful than, than most people that deals uh, remain within reach. You start with the top three leaders in government are the three biggest deal makers with a collective 113 years of experience between Speaker Pelosi, Majority Leader McConnell and President Biden. I am not personally convinced any of the three of them plan to run again in uh, for, for future elective office. McConnell, Senator Leader McConnell cares most about maintaining the Republican majority. And I don't think a do nothing uh, approach to running the Senate is a uh, is a slam dunk that because they don't hold the White House, he gets all his folks reelected. We're defending open seats in, in North Carolina and Pennsylvania, both very swingy. Got to defend in Georgia, which, as we've seen, is tight as a tick. Uh, we think we got to defend. Maybe we're attacking in Georgia. We're attacking in Arizona. I think McC- Senator McConnell is going to want to cut deals provided they aren't uh, abject surrender deals. And likewise, Speaker Pelosi can't rest on her laurels. She's got to prove that she can produce. I think the challenge will be the fringes. The challenge will be people lobbing in grenades, the AOCs and the progressive left who are unhappy, given how hard they worked to defeat President Trump. They're going to be really unhappy that the agenda that they perceived as part of the platform is not the agenda that's going to ever get the light of day on the Senate floor. And likewise, the lion in winter, President Trump will be out of the White House, but not out of politics and will surely be going after any Republicans on Twitter he perceives as cutting deals, which you and I might say to govern the nation, but he would say, you know, cutting deals with the enemy. Well, Bruce, I'll say if Trump is the lion in winter, I think one of the challenges for Senator McConnell going forward is that he's got a bunch of lion cubs in the Senate who are dying to take his place, Rubio, Holly, and Cotton, who the verbiage that they've used just in the past week here to begin attacking uh, President Biden shows that they are anxious to try to fill his uh, President Trump's very large shoes here. I don't know if they can do it. I don't know if you were insulted by Senator Rubio taking a shot at Ivy League schools, Bruce, uh, earlier this week. But uh, apparently he's uh, he's really going for uh, the East Coast elite here. So it's bad news for you. <laughs> well, if uh, if nominated, I will not serve. <laughs> I'll just say that uh, Dean Hankson representing the ACC and uh, I myself representing the SEC you know, also have a little bit of concern about UIV leaders. Well, uh, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, but uh, if the sport is lacrosse or crew, we uh, we hold our own. You do indeed. We'll take football <laughs> and basketball happily in exchange for lacrosse and crew. Lions, Tigers, Bears, oh my, uh, I'm ready for uh, that ball to drop on 2020. Bruce Melman, David Thomas, thanks for joining me on 14th and G. Thank you, Dean. Thank you.